Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Frederica Roberts, who is a speaker, trainer, and author in positive psychology and positive education. Welcome, Frederica. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Well, I heard you speak recently, and I was filled with happiness because I think you call yourself the happiness speaker. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes, that's my branding. (laughs) Oh, it was magic. And it was such a lovely podcast, well, not podcast, but a lovely uh, delivery at the talk. It was a professional speakers association meeting, and you absolutely smashed it. You just captivated me for that whole period of talking. And I loved it. And I wanted you to come on the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) And it's great to be here. And it's great that 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 came across that way, because obviously what I do want to do when I speak is um, give people real practical evidence-based tools that they can use in their lives, whether it's a a work environment. And obviously I was talking to professional speakers in, in, in that context, and it was about how we can use well-being tools as speakers to make sure that we're at the top of our game and that that we are well enough to do and deliver in the way that we need to as speakers and have the energy that we need to do what we do. Um, But also to give people that kind of um, inspiration, I suppose, so that they have the desire to take those tools and to put them into action. And uh, it's interesting, a few people have said to me that there are some people out there who speak about well-being and happiness who are really miserable <laughs> and it's just like, and I think well you know you are what you are and you are who you are but I think you know I've, I've always believed in in being authentic and bringing me and as a speaker that's been a journey because when you start off you know when I started off as a speaker a few years ago you take that many bits of feedback and all of that and and what I found initially is that I was probably trying to be too professional and too polished and actually not bringing me and my personality into the speaking. I think what actually engages people is when you are you and you bring who you are to it and who I am is is somebody who who is very lively and 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 full of the joys of life and not always you know life sometimes throws a lot of stuff at you and I'm sure we'll talk about some of that but but who 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 genuinely finds the the resourcefulness to bounce back and I want to to give people the tools to to work on themselves so that they can do that as well so how did you measure the difference between being sort of not less professional but just more you I don't know if I measured it as such, but there was a there was a moment I remember when I first joined the Professional Speaking Association quite a few years ago, and I went to a boot camp, and one of the uh, people that led and led the boot camp and gave us feedback was the very wonderful Dave Heiner, um, who who's a fantastic speaker, and he said something to me that was really interesting. And that was the start. It still took me a while, I think, to properly, but that was what kind of clicked. And he said, Fred, I feel like you are on a bungee rope when you speak. And I feel like there's little bits of you and your personality coming out and then you pull it back. You kind of bounce back and retreat to the back of the room. And you just need to cut that bungee rope and just go for it and be you. 
And I thought, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I'd actually previously been in a session where one person, and you have to be careful whose feedback you take, don't you? Because I'd been in one session um, where somebody had given me feedback and I had actually been quite me. And I am, you know, I'm just, I'm I'm big and loud and bold and, you know, I'm, I, I tend to be in people's faces a bit in, in a good way. You know, I'm not, I'm not aggressively in people's faces, but I'm kind of quite bouncily in people's faces. And, um, I was also quite quite large at that point. Um, I've lost a lot of weight over the last couple of years. Not that that makes a difference, but in terms of how I presented on stage, I suppose it, it does. The, the whole picture has an impact. And I've always liked wearing bright colours. So I'd, I'd gone to this event and I wore bright yellow and I was me and I was really bubbly. And then at one of the tables where I got feedback, one of the people said to me, you're too much in people's faces, you're too loud, too bold, too forward and bright clothes. And, you know, you're not a small person and you might as well have been sitting on my lap. You were that much in my face and it was just too much. And when you're new as a speaker, suddenly you go, oh, OK, well, maybe I just need to pull back a bit. And then I heard Dave Heiner say to me, actually, don't pull back, cut that, cut that bungee rope. And 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 I think that that were those were two transitions as a speaker in terms of of bringing my personality. So I, I can't say I've measured it scientifically in any way, but you know you measure the reactions, I suppose. And and the more I've I've let myself be me, and that includes you know being quite irreverent about myself and taking the Mickey out of myself when I'm talking, and um, and not trying to be too polished. That doesn't mean I don't practice. Or, or you know hone my craft but it's about just making sure that there's enough spontaneity in there to be me um I found that people just respond better and people like that and and that's when I get the the, the great responses like yours you know that people do feel inspired they feel that they want to take action and that's if if people don't want to take action after you've spoken at an event or delivered some training then what is the point in speaking and delivering training so that's that's I suppose my measure you know when people come back and say yeah I've, I've wanted to take action or I have taken this action as a result and and that's great and something you said there is you have to be careful who you take feedback from and you, you yeah. sort of illustrate your point but who how do you know who to take feedback from how do, <laughs> how do you trust one person over another um that's a that's a life in general question isn't it not just in uh, as a speaker I think you you learn, you live and learn over time. Sometimes you take people's feedback and you realize that just wasn't the right one to take. I think a general rule of thumb is particularly heed the feedback of people that you know and respect. Um, if you know them well or you know their work well and you respect what they do and you respect how they do it, then um, generally there might be value in taking feedback from them. Others, you know, everybody will always have an opinion. That doesn't mean that it's it's necessarily the right thing for you. But even then, you know, there might be people that you know and respect and that do something fantastically and you want to take their feedback. But sometimes, you know, they're, they're still a different person to you and therefore it might not still be the right thing to do I think you have to kind of apply a bit of a of a sanity check to it of does this apply to me is this relevant to me and some of that you can only develop with experience in whatever area you're taking that feedback wherever it applies to you know whether it's life in general whether it's a particular area of work the more experience you have the more your internal barometer will tell you whether that's the right feedback or not um, and I know that's a bit of a cop-out for anybody listening you know it's um, how do you know you know when you know but it is a bit like that you know uh, the more experienced you 
you are at something, the more you know which bits of feedback are relevant and which ones aren't. And, and I think it's always important to hear those opinions, to hear the feedback. I also always think, you know, um, ask for the feedback when you want it of the people you want it from and be careful sometimes of the ones that offer it unsolicited <laughs> when it's just a way to have a, a go at you because some people do you know so again it's it's and and to anybody thinking of offering feedback to somebody what ask yourself whether that's welcome or warranted and 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 wait for the invitation sometimes so so positive psychology and positive education tell me more so positive psychology is really uh, quite often defined as the science of well-being. And um, it's it's an interesting thing because when I started, and, and in a way I wish I hadn't branded myself as a happiness speaker, but I'm known as that now because it's so much more than happiness. And one of the people that I greatly admire in this field, who's known as the founding father of positive psychology, uh, Dr. Martin Zelligman, um, he's often referred to as what people talk about as happyology. And, and positive psychology is not that. Positive psychology is about so much more. It really is about applying science and research to what what makes people tick and what makes them well and um one of the ways it's often described as is if you imagine well-being on a scale of say minus 10 to plus 10 um then somebody who's mentally well would be on the zero to plus 10 scale and psychology traditional psychology tends to deal with the zero to minus 10 scale so it tends to deal with pathology it tends to deal with illness mental illness and how do we deal with that and if you look at the i think it's called the dsm i'm not a psychologist but basically the manual that, that has all the mental illnesses in that, that psychologists refer to and that gets updated from time to time it is all just about mental illness it is about that zero to minus 10 and in the, it didn't used to be like that when I when I I remember when I did my master's in applied positive psychology one of the first essays I did was about the criticisms of positive psychology and as part of that I looked at its history and um, Martin Zelligman has written a lot about this and the fact that actually psychology used to encompass the, the the well-being side of things the positive side as well and then I think it was after World War II when psychologists realized that actually there was so much trauma so much of what we now know as PTSD to deal with that actually if they want to turn living as psychologists they needed to deal with trauma they needed to deal with mental illness and so the positive side kind of got forgotten and then it was in the late 90s that um, th that movement came back um, so that's what positive psychology is and it's really not just about the individual because you can never be truly happy and mentally well if you are witnessing suffering all around you so as human beings although sometimes it feels different as human beings we are actually quite altruistic we care about other people so part of being well is also about creating a better world and creating a better environment around ourselves so positive psychology is about that as well it's about the good of society as a whole and that's where positive education kind of comes into it it's a term that certainly in the UK isn't very widely used um, in other parts of the world more like Australia for example and Positive education, the International Positive Education Network summarise it quite well. They talk about the double helix, where one strand of the helix, so it's like the DNA of, of, of positive education, where one strand of the helix is basically um, well-being and character development, and the other strand is academic achievement. So positive education is not about saying that schools should be only about well-being. 
Of course, there is academic stuff that schools need to deliver, but it's not academic achievement to the exclusion of well-being and character development. And that actually schools have a role to do all of that because children spend the majority of their waking hours in an education environment and they need to, to get both sides of that. They need to learn the academic stuff, um, but they also need to, to be taught directly and indirectly. And that's where positive education comes in it's not just about plonking some well-being lessons into the curriculum it's about how do you live and breathe well-being in in your school day how do you build that into your interactions with children and with colleagues in the school how do you build that into interactions with 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 parents and the wider community if you're designing or improving a school building how can you think about how that building can impact on well-being. So how do people move through that building? What do they look at when they're moving through that building? Um, and that's quite difficult if you're in a really old school building, but a lot of schools that are being built from scratch are now being built much more with that in mind. Um, one school I looked at uh, was fantastic, where, for example, um, they'd even thought about where to put the art rooms in the building and how to have the windows facing in the right way so that there would be optimal light for the artists and how to have the canteen in the central atrium but also using it as a space for six formers to to do their work when they weren't in lessons so that they could be role models for the younger pupils for example so all of these things it's about putting the thought into how the the building the the way you teach the interactions you have with pupils and amongst adults how you interact with the wider community, how all of that impacts on not just the ability to learn academically, but also to be well. And are you doing this single-handedly? Because it sounds like you, or you've, you've got a lot of work going on here. It's not just me. I mean, there, there are lots of people in this field and a growing number of people in this field. A lot of people don't call it necessarily positive education. So the, my, my latest book, which I'm very excited, is coming out uh, as an ebook in June, on the 18th of June, and as a, as a, a paperback on the 21st of August. Uh, it's called For Flourishing Sake. And one of the joys of writing that book was actually interviewing school leaders and well-being um, specialists working in schools on what they were doing. And I spoke to people from primary schools, from secondary schools, uh, even uh, one or two that worked in higher education. And I spoke to people from state-funded schools in deprived areas and independent schools uh, all over the world. And the joy was to hear their stories about the stuff that they're doing from very small stuff. Um, so one guy who... Um was working in a school and he just decided that he needed to bring more kindness in and he just started as he put it peppering kindness throughout the school and and this kind of started a movement of everybody wanting to do more kind actions in their school uh, and it was little things even like taping a, a 50 pence coin to a to a snack dispenser with a little post-it note saying help yourself uh, you know to to sending people little notes saying thank you for something you know it doesn't have to be big things so that was one person and then at the other end, talking to people at Geelong Grammar School in Australia and um, at Fortis Education in Dubai, where they've literally created schools from scratch to be positive education schools. So they've given all of that thought to the process from start to finish. And they're constantly evaluating it, scientifically measuring, uh, seeing what works and constantly improving it as well. So the, the whole scheme 
scale of that really um and so no it's not just me uh, but what i do in my work is really i do work with children in schools um giving them tools that they can put into place and when i say children i've literally worked pretty much with every age group from um i've done a little bit with the very very young ones but mostly starting from about eight year olds all the way to 18 and increasingly more and more working with their teachers to give them the science behind what I'm teaching the children and to give them the practical tools that they can use in their teaching practice um, to bring more positive psychology into what they do. And also I've been doing more and more work with teachers, supporting them in doing action research in schools so that they can actually research elements of positive psychology and character education, which is an element of positive education really. And uh, in, in a very kind of measured way, practice them in the classroom and measure the outcomes and document them so that others can then improve from that and they themselves can see what works and what doesn't work. So putting a bit more science into the trial and error. Um, so it's, it's a movement. There's lots of us globally doing this. I've been to amazing conferences all over the world where I've spoken and listened to fantastic experts in this field. Um, but we're all working towards that goal of, of adapting what we know from positive psychology and bringing it into school environments in a way that's culturally appropriate for each school and each country. And how are you finding the children reacting and the teachers and the parents? How, how do they respond to the work you're doing? It's a mixture, really. Kids and parents generally like it, although there have been responses where schools have had me in sometimes over a couple of years to work, for example, with six formers. So um, for those listening not in the UK, so those doing their, their end of school exams at sort of the 16 to 18 age range. Um, where I've worked with them on all of these tools, working on resilience, um, working on, on things like gratitude and all of the many, many components of positive psychology. And actually with six formers, with that age group, you can go quite deep in terms of the science behind it as well, which is great. And giving them real practical tools that they can use to look after their well-being. And all the research shows that if you look after the well-being, then actually that supports the academic achievement. And later on in life, it supports achievement in career goals as well. So it's not just fluffy. It's definitely not fluffy. It's actually about uh, achieving your goals as well. And, uh, and once or twice, the schools then have had feedback from parents saying, no, we want our children to use those sessions on, say, a Wednesday afternoon or whatever to, to learn about careers and job applications and not about well-being, which is a shame. Um, um, but I think it comes down to a misunderstanding as well. And, and sometimes, you know, making sure that the school communicates what you're doing with their children in a way that the parents understand, which is why in a lot of schools, I've uh, been very fortunate to also be able to work with the parents and do sessions for them so that they understand it. And, and usually when the parents come into the sessions, they it's like a light bulb moment. They kind of go, oh, I get this now. And the, the kids generally do like it. Uh, I mean, again, there are some that kind of think, what's the point in this? Shouldn't I be doing maths instead? Or shouldn't I be doing something that's going to help me with my exams? But on the whole, they respond very, very well. And again, teachers, for the most part, 
respond very well and school leaders and and actually there are a lot of them already doing a lot of this so it's not about teaching them to suck eggs it's about maybe labeling more clearly what they're already doing and showing them how they can do more of it and more deliberately um, but as with everything there there are always certain elements that are resistant and in education particularly when it comes to teachers and school leaders there, there is a bit of a dichotomy um, and you know there are those that want to be very much just schools are about academic stuff and exams and that's all it should be and that's all we should focus on and anything else is just rubbish and then there are those that actually say well look you know school is about so much more than that and we need to to look at the whole child whilst I can try and educate um, and bring the knowledge to to everybody you can only really work with those that want to work with you so I tend to work with those obviously who understand the value of this and inevitably they tend to be the ones that are doing a lot of this already but they want to do more and they want to 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 learn more and I think ultimately it'll be a case of, as with all waves and movements, it takes time and um, education over the, the the hundreds of years, you know, has gone through many, many evolutions. And um, if you actually look at early um, education in sort of ancient Greek times, it was all about character. It was all about what kind of person you are and about asking philosophical questions. And in that they were learning an awful lot about maths and geometry and all of that, but actually that it was led by philosophers and so and and that's the basis a lot of the basis of character education for example so that there is an awful lot of that and if you look at actually even the most traditionalists uh, traditionalist educators of course they're teaching children about character strengths of course they're teaching them about the value of certain behaviors and certain actions and consequences and all of that kind of stuff they just don't label it as that so sometimes it's a case of being a bit clever about it and not labeling them labeling the stuff you do in certain ways and then people still do it and and get the value uh, but for the for the most part the response I get is very very positive and people want more of this and I can see that you are passionate about it because it just flows from every <laughs> you can't shut me up <laughs> no I'm not saying that at all I'm just saying you're just so passionate which is fantastic and, and why does it mean so much to you well, that's that's the big question, isn't it? The why, why, why does it mean so much to me? It's it's something I suppose I've come to this over a period of time, and it's been a bit convoluted. So before I did what I did, I had a number of careers, and uh, one of those was quite short lived. But I straight, almost straight after my uh, degree, my first degree, my bachelor's, um, way back when in 1993. Shortly after that, I um, I did a teacher training course. I did a PGC, so I became a qualified teacher. Um, then I went and did other things, and and after I'd had my two daughters, I went back into teaching because that's what I trained to do and I taught for two years part-time and it honestly it nearly killed me off <laughs> it it was horrific and as I do work in education now I know that things have got much much harder for teachers so it's not surprising that pretty much the world over education is leaking teachers as fast as it's attracting them if not faster I left through extreme stress I literally woke up one morning had a panic attack and thought I cannot set foot in another classroom again so having left teaching um, and having vowed never to set foot in a classroom again it's quite ironic that uh, over a decade later, I would then end up actually uh, spending most of my time in classrooms and in schools um, doing what I do and um, working with children as well as teachers. 
so that that was kind of, I suppose, sowing the seeds a long time ago, but it then took a long time before I got into what I was doing. And actually, after I left teaching, I then spent over a decade working in uh, in recruitment, so a completely different field, and sort of worked my that until I, I covered a recruitment business. And and then we hit, um, well, a couple of things during that time. Um Towards the end of my recruitment career, I still had a few years left in me there. Um, my eldest daughter, both my daughters were born with congenital heart uh, conditions that are quite serious and uh, life-threatening to, to quite a large extent, uh, but both doing very well. They're now 20 and 22. But while I was working in recruitment, my eldest daughter uh, was 12 at this point in 2010, and she had a cardiac arrest at home one morning, very unexpectedly. Um, she was actually the one with the less serious heart condition, so she was the one worried about the least. And uh, it just happened completely out of the blue. And to this day, we don't really exactly know why, um, other than she probably went into a, a massive arrhythmia, which she was prone to. Um, and it's it's a, a few things happened to kind of make sure that she survived, which was uh, it happened at seven o'clock in the morning as her alarm was going off, which meant that I was able to notice. Um, and uh, we were lucky that there was an ambulance parked uh, just around the corner. So the ambulance got here very fast. But even so, it took um, they shocked her four times uh, in on her bedroom floor uh, to try and uh, get her heart to restart. And they still didn't actually wake her up at that point. She didn't wake up for, for eight days. She was put into um, an induced coma in hospital because they basically, a cardiac arrest and oxygen deprivation to the brain uh, causes the same kind of damage to the brain as, um, as say, a drowning or any kind of other oxygen deprivation. So they had to protect her brain and reduce brain swelling. And, and she, she made an incredibly rapid recovery after that. And uh, there's a whole story around that that I could do a whole podcast. <laughs> but um, she... In that time, while she was unconscious and then while she was recovering, it started me thinking about all the things that I'd been prioritizing, as in we were in the middle of a recession and uh, I was worried about the business that I bought into. I was worried about my livelihood. I was working ridiculous hours. I was stressed. I was miserable. I was unhappy. Um, and it kind of got me to really think, not for the first time, but because we'd gone through quite a few things with both our daughters, but it got me thinking about um, you know, is this really how I want to spend my time? And is there a better way for me to work so that I can spend more time with my daughters? Um, but I didn't really make my major changes at that point. I changed my working hours a little bit uh, and I prioritized my time at home a bit more. Uh, but I still stayed in the recruitment business for a while. And then it, this carried on for, for a few more years. And I got to a point where um, the recession had meant that uh, there were only two people left in the business plus a part-time uh, bookkeeper. So there was me and my co-director. Um, and we were working from home. We'd had to make everybody redundant. We'd closed the office. And um, then my co-director had, had twins uh, very, very early. So it ended up being just me holding the fort for a while. And, and this was really hard. And at that point, I'd also started doing other things. So I was running a social media marketing training and consultancy business. And I'd started a, a micro food business from home. Um, so I was, I was quite literally, I think, on my knees. You know, I remember preparing food at ridiculous 
ridiculous times in the morning to then go to markets. And I had, I was stirring these massive pots of risotto and I had um, uh, effectively developed tennis elbow as a result of doing this. And, and I was just exhausted and angry a lot of the time. And I thought something's got to give and I've got to do something different. And I actually remember this is the point at which I'd started thinking about speaking and uh, I hadn't really decided where it was going to go, but I knew that there was something in because even though at this point I was really miserable, I knew that everything, every time something happened in my life, I was able to pick myself back up and I was doing things to pick myself back up. And people would keep saying, how are you always so cheerful? All this stuff happens. Um, at this point, my daughters had had between them two open heart surgeries and two cardiac arrests. Um, since then, my youngest daughter has had another open heart surgery. And people, how do you do this? How do you keep going back into work mode? How do you keep being cheerful? And I kept telling people on a one-to-one basis some of the stuff that I did. Um, and actually, a lot of my responses were around, well, I don't have a choice. I do what I've got to do. And as I started thinking about it, I realized that actually I was making a lot of choices all the time. Um, and I started looking into positive psychology. And anyway, I went to I joined the PSA, the Professional Speaking Association, and the first meeting I went to, I met an amazing person who unfortunately has died since, um, Nina Mortenbrook. She was just a joy to be around. And she was the first person I had a conversation with at that meeting. And as you do, you go to a networking event and you say, what do you do? What do you do? And and, um, I said, well, you know, I... I do social media marketing and I run a food business and I love blogging about food and recipes. And I also do all this stuff around happiness that I want to speak about. And, and somehow it'll all come together under some kind of theme at some point. I'm not quite sure, but it will. And, and Nina looked at me and she said, it won't, you know, you're going to have to choose something. You're going to have to pick. And that was quite a pivotal moment. And at that point, I thought, well, what am I really passionate about? And at that point, it still hadn't completely focused, but I knew happiness and well-being was one of the things. And food was the other, <laughs> I'm a big foodie. And so I actually ended up writing my first book, uh, Recipe for Happiness. And I combined um, well-being and recipes. And each chapter has a recipe that means something to me um, that's kind of linked to the theme of the chapter. And it's as part of writing that book that I really started looking into positive psychology and discovered people like Martin Zeligman, the founding father of positive psychology, but also Sean Acor, who's an American um, who's done so much work into positive psychology. And and for me, that was, and I've had the pleasure and the honor of of meeting Martin Zeligman and Sean Acor. And um, the the, the TED talk by Sean Acor is is fantastic on this. Um, And it's he really took the science and this whole stuff of well-being and he did what I'd been crying out for somebody to do to kind of take the fluffiness out of it and say, this is how it helps businesses. This is how it helps people achieve goals. And I kind of thought, yes, yes, this is it. This is, you know, because I used to, if I talked to people and said, I'd talk about happiness, they used to do this little head tilt and go, oh, isn't that nice? And I was like, no, that's not the response I want. It's not nice and fluffy. This is serious stuff. This is science. And then I read uh, the amazing book by Sonia Lubomirsky, The How of Happiness, and all the research into the the effort and the intentional activities we have to put into well-being um, was really pivotal there. And then I started looking 
looking at the education side of things and Sir Anthony Selden here in the UK, he introduced a well-being curriculum when he was headmaster of Wellington uh, College uh, back in 2006 when nobody was talking about this stuff. And, and he's now um, vice chancellor of the University of Buckingham, where they also have uh, a big focus on well-being. And as I started speaking about well-being, I actually focused on businesses uh, because I'd been in business and uh, that's where I kind of thought it should go. And people kept saying, you need to go into schools. You need to go into schools. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to. I've been in schools. It's traumatized me. I'm not going back into schools. And then one day I decided to try it. I thought I'll, I'll, I made a commitment to try and see if, if it was something that I would enjoy doing. And the response, I went into, my, my, it was a baptism of fire. I went into a local school for free and I faced, I remember looking at uh, empty chairs in an assembly hall um, and I was going to be facing about 240 um, year 10 pupils. So these would be sort of 14 year olds. It was early in the academic year. So they would have been just about 14. And I remember looking at this room and having palpitations and thinking, what am I doing to myself? And then I remembered that my youngest daughter, Hannah, at that point uh, was exactly in that year group. She was just returning to school after having had open heart surgery that summer. And I thought, well, actually, Hannah is lovely. And I'm not here as a teacher. I'm here as somebody who's a bit more interesting to the pupils because I'm not doing same old, same old. I'm going to do something different. And I had 15 minutes to grab their attention. I had a 15 minute assembly to talk to them about well-being. And then they could sign up if they wanted to, to do a well-being workshop of an hour with me in the school. And the workshop was oversubscribed. They were all queuing up wanting to do it. And I thought, wow and then I did the same thing in the same school with six formers and again they they were really chomping at the bit to get into the workshop and that's kind of where all of these experiences over a number of years kind of came together and it was like this is where it's at and then I did a master's in applied positive psychology which I actually specialized in positive education as part of that so I did all the modules that I could around education and even the modules that weren't about education I took into education. So even when I did the module on um, neuroscience of positive psychology, for example, uh, my assignments were based on how you could apply the neuroscience of positive psychology to education. So everything I did, positive relationships, it was about education and positive relationships in, in an education setting. And, and then from there, I've actually gone on to start a doctorate in education, which is what I'm doing now. And during my master's, I developed a model of whole school positive education, which I'm now going to research further as part of my doctorate so it's a very long answer to a question of why am I doing this but it, it's kind of it's not been one moment but lots and lots of moments over a period of years that have led me to 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 be where I am now and where most of my work not all my work I will still work with businesses and I will still work with uh, other organizations, charities, etc., because there is a need for this everywhere. And positive education isn't actually just about schools, it's about educating people in positive psychology in any setting. But schools, and particularly primary schools, actually, um, is where I have this real passion. And a lot of what I do is working with teachers so that I can actually reach more children that way. Because so many of us get into our mid 40s or beyond and and maybe if we're lucky a bit of a penny drops about the fact that we need to work on our well-being and surely surely if we teach children this stuff from a very young age 
we can prevent a lot of the zero to minus 10 stuff that psychologists have to deal with. There is a crisis in mental health in children and teenagers, not just in the UK, but worldwide. The statistics are horrifying. And when you then look at that and how it translates into sort of public health concerns, economic concerns for, for, for countries, you know, in terms of addiction issues, in terms of unemployment, in terms of crime figures, all of these things resulting from quite often not addressed issues with mental health that have developed over years and festered. If we can equip people with those mental health tools before there is a problem so that we can really work at the preventative end, because I must stress, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a counsellor, um, but I am trained in positive psychology. So it's about prevention. And if we can work on the prevention end, of course, it's not going to eliminate mental health, mental health, just like any, or rather mental health Ill issues, mental illness, like any other illness. We can take precautions. We can do everything we can to prevent accidents, but people will still fall over and break a leg and we can do everything we can. But there are lots of issues at play that lead to mental illness, not illness, not least of which also um, some genetic factors. But if we can actually do a lot of that preventative work at an early age, we're going to see a lot fewer issues later on in people's lives and that's really where my passion is and that's why I do so much of my work in education. And given that there are so many issues and so many knock-on effects of, of not looking after yourself, why are you, are you met with so much resistance in well-being? Why do you think that people <laughs> just don't consider it important enough? I think there's a lot around that. Um, one is that it's still perceived as fluffy and I think people like me and everybody else working in this field have a real responsibility to, to not make it fluffy and to, to therefore be responsible with what we share. And that's why I was so passionate about doing a master's in applied positive psychology. That's why I'm doing a doctorate in education, because it's about making sure that what we share is actually evidence-based and sound because it's not fluffy. It's about uh, real research going into this field. The other side of it is that there is a stigma associated with mental illness and even just saying mental illness, people have all sorts of connotations that come up. But, you know, suffering from uh, regular bouts of anxiety is mental illness. Uh, being subjected to regular stress through your job is mental illness. People accept that as part of their everyday lives. And, and, you know, a bit of stress is good for us. It can make us very productive and get us to achieve stuff. But I'm talking about the sustained damaging stress levels. But, but so many of us accept that as the norm and as it's just life. And, and don't see that as something that needs addressing. And as soon as you label it as mental illness, people see a stigma and see an issue with that. And the only thing we can do really in that respect is education that, you know, mental, mental health is just like physical health. It's something that we have to work on and it's something that we can uh, look at, you know, just like we would do risk assessments about physical um, well-being of employees at work and stuff. It's the same thing with, with mental well-being. We need to make sure that that we look at the risks and that we look at what we can put in place to prevent the issues. And I think it's just, as with most things, when they are relatively new, um, this isn't completely new, but kind of the field of positive psychology is still relatively new, that we actually need to just share the information, educate people about what it is and what it isn't, and show the results. And the more we show the results, the less resistance there will be, but it's a process. And it's with anything that you introduce, there is a process of, of people understanding it and then accepting it.
And it requires effort. It does require effort. Absolutely. It requires effort on, on, on the part of individuals as well. So we can't just go into schools and businesses and say, you know, it's your responsibility to look after the mental health of your employees, of your students, etc. It's their responsibility to provide an environment in which people can look after their mental health. But it's every individual's responsibility. Just like if you look at Health and Safety at Work Act, for example, you know, the, the employer has a responsibility to keep people physically safe, but the individual has a responsibility to keep themselves safe and it's the same with our mental well-being it takes effort and it's each of our responsibility to do what we can to look after our mental well-being and for some people it's easier than for others absolutely and that's where people like me come into it and we can help make it easier for people because I realize that I'm one of those people that finds it relatively easy to bounce back and to do all of these things. And I was doing a lot of the stuff that I've since studied uh, instinctively, but not everybody does. And that's fine. But we can we can train that we can show people what they can do and people can try things out for themselves, see what works and resonates for them and do more of it deliberately and putting the effort in. So how would people get in touch with you, Fred? Uh, the best way to get in touch with me uh, is two ways, really. They can either email me at fred at happiness-speaker.co.uk. And I'm sure you'll put that onto the, the podcast page, but it's fred at, uh, at happiness-speaker.co.uk. Or I hang out on Twitter quite a lot. So at Frederica underscore R. So that's F-R-E-D-E-R-I-K-A underscore R. And you'll find me on Twitter. And I'm always happy to interact with people on there as well. Well, it's been an absolute blast hearing your passion, your why and understanding why mental well-being is so important. And, you know, you don't need to sell it to me. I'm on board already. But <laughs> but I know that a lot of people are resistant and the fluffiness mm. does seem to still be the stigma that gets attached to it. So keep going because I'm sure you'll get, you'll you. get there eventually. <laughs> um, have you got a final final message for the audience? Yeah, um, I think that there's there's two things, really. The first thing is what we were talking just about at, at the end there, that it matters, you know, and, and it takes effort. It's not just going to happen. Um, even somebody who finds it quite easy, like me, to bounce back, I still do put the work in. I still write a gratitude journal. I still make sure that I get fresh air and sunshine and stuff like that, to, because I know it helps my mental health. And, and a big part of the effort that we haven't really talked about and touched on, but a big, big part of that is that people matter and relationships matter. So part of the effort that I would advise everybody to put into their mental health and well-being is to not cultivate cultivate hundreds of relationships, but to really put effort into quality relationships, interactions with other people, because a lot of research has been done into this and shows that the re the quality of our relationships with other people impacts on our mental health, on our physical health and on how long we live. So it's really important. So it does take effort. And if you've got to start somewhere, put a lot of that effort into the relationships and the quality of the relationships you have with other people. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star iTunes review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of the inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.